You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Well, good morning everybody. This is Annie and finally I'm back in the studio. It's just extraordinary on this sunny Saturday morning. And uh, today we're going to hear from a whole lot of people live, which is uh, live and at this moment Unbelievable. Even Kevin's going to uh, uh, answer my telephone call, hopefully, and uh, talk to us as a live person as opposed to a uh, distant voice from a a radio-recorded interview. So that's uh, really nice, really nice to be back, and I hope you're feeling well. I hope you survived COVID in one piece Uh, and uh, that... uh, you know, things are uh, shaping up in a way that uh, is quite optimistic rather than uh, pessimistic. You know, there's lots of work to be done, lots of work to be done now that uh, the doors have been open. Uh, I Today I uh, have got a bit from um, the uh, recent uh, Communist Party of Australia's anniversary. They uh, were 100 years old, or they, they they actually uh, folded in 1991, but uh, they started in uh, 1920, which is a pretty long run. And uh, uh, there's a sort of a permutation, the Search Foundation, the, the money from the CPA went to the Search Foundation and they now uh, uh, run uh, seminars and uh, raise consciousness and uh, support in uh, progressive areas of uh, conversation and over the COVID they've been doing a variety of webinars and they, uh, in collaboration with the New South Wales uh, State Library, ran a day of, um, it was six sessions and it was uh, and it was online and it was all about uh, different key areas that the uh, Communist Party uh, members uh, were involved in uh, because part of what they were about was not so much, uh, uh, st- you know, sticking to being in one group uh, and talking to each other. They really worked on trying to have an effect on uh, moving the progressive side of politics ahead by uh, their own personal uh, involvement in a whole lot of different areas. And uh, one of the areas that the Com- uh, Communist Party uh was influential in, very influential in, was raising the consciousness of uh, the white population of Australia about uh, the uh, uh, First uh, First Peoples' uh, needs and uh, their rights. And uh, so anyway, 
that was one of these sessions. That was an important session. Um, so today, um, because it's NAIDOC week, I thought we'd share some of this stuff. And uh, the first part of it is what we're going to hear to begin with is the welcome to country and uh, then followed by uh, a historical look at um, what the CPA was involved in. And uh, after that, we'll listen to uh, Thomas Mayer um, for a little bit of a look at uh, the uh, present situation for uh, Indigenous people. And Thomas Mayer, you might know, is uh, the... Indigenous officer, National Indigenous officer for the MUA, and uh, I think he's the uh, Deputy Secretary of the MUA in the Northern Territory. I think that's his title. Um, anyway, uh, or maybe he's the Secretary. Um, oh, I, I should should know. I should know. But anyway, uh, he's been going around the country uh, proselytising for uh, the. Um, the Uluru statement and the uh, the uh, efforts in that in that regard. So he explains himself, which is quite interesting. He's a great talker, anyway. So we'll uh, kick off the program today with uh, the uh, Indigenous session from the CPA's uh, anniversary. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, it is really an honour to be here in this forum and um, to be able to give a welcome to you all from all over the country. And uh, I'm, my, my name is Millie Ingram and I'm a Rajku woman from central New South Wales, uh, but I've been in Gadigal country for quite a while and uh, we are here on the land of the Gadigal people. And I pay my respects and acknowledge them as the traditional custodians of our land here in Sydney. It, the Gadigal people are one of uh, 29 claims of the Aura Nation. And I know you all know uh, the traditional custodians, owners of the land where you are today. And I honour you all for, for being here. I am so delighted to be here. And I um, had to get myself around what the whole thing was about. I know what the Communist Party is about because I know way back when I grew up in an Aboriginal zoo that... Um, there was lots of fights for us under the Aboriginal uh, Protection. The APP, it was called, that's right, I was there. The APP, and um, we've been fighting to get our rights in this country for so long, and we're still fighting. I keep telling everybody in governments, uh, particularly, that they've got to shut down these industries the industries of prisons, the industries of um, children in out of home care, the kids in institutions in juvenile justice. They're the industries because Gary Foley once said that if you closed all these industries down, uh, the government set them up as industries so they would keep their unemployment high. And you look at how many people are employed in these institutions, it's just so sad. So if we keep continue to fight because we have not got our equal rights in our own country yet, but I am so honoured of all the people that have fought with us and alongside of us over all these years and all these decades. And um, I hope that we go on to bigger and better things as, as a nation, but the nation will never come uh, to its adult life until they address the issues they have with Aboriginal people. So thank you for once again. I know the work that the Communist Party has done over the years. I know that my father always said as a shearer, when you get stuck, make sure you join a union and keep fighting the, the capitalists and the, uh, and the government when they try to 
rip you off because we were slave labor when we were on the Aboriginal reserves, which I grew up on. So I've got a little bit more idea of what this is about now, and I really appreciate all you folks and what you're doing. So thank you and welcome, and I'm looking forward to hearing all our speakers today. Thank you very much. Welcome. The person who'll speak first is Anne Kurtois. Anne's a Sydney-based historian who's written several books about the struggle of First Nations people in Australia. In 2002, she published Freedom Rider, Freedom Rider Remembers, which tells the story of the 1965 Freedom Ride in which she was a participant. In 2018, with Jesse Mitchell, she published Taking Liberty, Indigenous Rights and Self-Government in Colonial Australia, which is a groundbreaking revision of 19th century Australian history. And she's currently writing a book about the visit to Australia in 1960 of the Afro-American communists Paul and Athander Robeson. She wrote a chapter two for our book Comrades about her mum, Barbara Curtois, who was an activist in the CPA and the Union of Australian Women, and like Anne, was also a lifetime supporter of the struggle for Indigenous rights in Australia. So let's begin briefly with the 1920s. The Communist Party was small, with only 300 members in 1928, rising to nearly 500 in 1930. And it was admitted in 1921 to the Moscow-based Communist International, known as the Comintern, where it came under pressure to adhere to a policy of emancipation of, quote, oppressed nationalities and respect for the rights of national minorities. The communist newspapers in the 1920s, such as the Workers' Weekly, did from time to time published articles highlighting the contemporary situation of pastoral workers and opposing the widespread idea that Australian settlement had, had occurred peacefully. In the words of one article, the annals of Australian pioneering history are smudged with the blood of natives slaughtered, mainly because they were in the way of the big squatter. So these were challenging um, ideas at the time, but the party was not in much of a position to take a lot of action. But in the 1930s, as the party itself grew stronger and attracted more members, it took the question a lot further. And in its draft policy of struggle against slavery in 1931, which is a pretty incredible document, and um, it began the Aboriginal race, the original inhabitants of Australia, amongst the most exploited subject peoples in the world. And it went on to say, a campaign of mass physical extermination is being and has been carried on against them. And there were 14 demands for recognition for Aboriginal rights um, in this document, which make really interesting reading today. They included full and equal rights with white races. This is all in the language of the time. Freedom to organize and participate in demonstrations, removal of racial discrimination, payment of full wages, prohibition of slave and forced labour, release of all Aboriginal people from jail, full right of parents to their children without fear of their being taken away, permission of Aboriginal children to attend public and high schools, liquidation of all missions, full right to develop native culture, train their own teachers, and the handing over of large tracts of watered and fertile country to become one or more independent Aboriginal states or republics with power to make their own treaties and the handing back of all of central, northern and northwest Australia. So these were big demands. And as we know, some of those have happened like attending school and some of those are still in process. During the 1930s, a key figure in the Communist Party was Tom Wright. He became a, lead, um, a leading figure in articulating an Aboriginal policy. 
He was a leader in the Sheep Metal Workers Union and also the New South Wales Labor Council. And in 1937, he arranged for Aboriginal activist and unionist William Ferguson to address the Labor Council, after which it adopted a policy that was quite similar to the one the party had proposed in 1931. And then in 1939, his influential pamphlet, A New Deal for Aborigines, criticised the Commonwealth Government's recent development of an assimilation policy to guide state governments. And his pamphlet um, was arguing for something much, uh, much greater change. It rested on a distinction between tribalised peoples who were seen to have the rights of national minorities and detribalised peoples for whom equal citizenship rights were the appropriate demand. And when re it was reprinted several times, when reprinted in 1944, it had a stirring introduction by the noted communist author, Catherine Susanna Pritchard. So now could we just take the story into the 1940s, during which time we see the Communist Party grew dramatically in its membership and influence during the Second World War, when the Soviet Union and Australia were allies. But when the Cold War set in at the end of the war, it began to lose membership. But it was still a force in the late 40s to be reckoned with. And uh, a key event in this period, I think, was the support that the Communist Party gave to the Pilbara Pastoral Workers' Strike in 1946 and 47. And while the strike was generated by Aboriginal workers who had their own agendas, Don McLeod, a non-Aboriginal communist, was a very important conduit, I think, between these workers and supporters down south. And furthermore, the Communist Party was very successful in helping mobilise support for the strikers at the time. And these connections, I think, between North and South were also evident when the Communist-led North Australian Workers' Union in Darwin supported Aboriginal strikers and sent Aboriginal organiser Jack McGuinness to the 1951 ACTU Congress to gain wider support for Aboriginal workers' struggles, which he did. And in Melbourne that year, also 1951, the very active Victorian Council for Aboriginal Rights was formed with several of its leading figures, members of the Communist Party. And it was particularly good, I think, the Victorian Council in maintaining contact with people in the North. Then in 1954, the Communist Party altered its thinking on Aboriginal matters. And this was very important. It abandoned its distinction between tribal and tribalised peoples and it stressed a common Aboriginal struggle across the country. And the other thing that happened, I think, in 1954 is that the party took up the Aboriginal cause with a new intensity, so effectively that anti-communists came to be seriously concerned. At the same time, Aboriginal advancement organisations of varying political views were being formed around the country, eventually joining together to form the Federal Council for Aboriginal Advancement. And again, Several communists played leading roles in that organisation. I'll just mention quickly Shirley Andrews, um, who was very a uh, leading figure in Fikatsi as it became, when Torres Strait Islands were added to the name of the council in 1964. And she was a very powerful force in the growth, um, or and the organisation as a whole, the growth of the movement for Aboriginal rights through the 1960s. Communist attention to Aboriginal matters, I think too, it's worth mentioning, occurred often indirectly through organisations with strong communist influence. These included certain trade unions, such as the Waterside Workers' Federation, Building Workers, um, Industrial Union, the Builders' Labours Federation, which all supported Aboriginal protest campaigns financially and in other ways. And I'll just mention here, um, Aboriginal, there were a number of Aboriginal 
unionist members of the party in this period, including Ray Peckham, a Wiradjuri man from Dubbo, who in the early 1950s joined the BLF and the Communist Party and had strong links with Aboriginal organisations through New South Wales. Also one of these organisations um, that were important was the Union of Australian Women. Formed in 1950, this organisation had strong communist influence, but it also included a range of labour and non-aligned women. And in the late 1950s and early 1960s especially, it attracted to it a number of influential Aboriginal women, especially in New South Wales and Queensland. Key figures to join the UAW in these years, some of them were also in the Communist Party, but not all of them, but key figures in the UAW included Gladys O'Shane in North Queensland, Kath Walker, as she was known then, later known as Boojaroo, and Sylvia Cairns in Brisbane, Gladys Elphick in Adelaide, Pearl Gibbs, Dulcie Flower and Louise West in New South Wales and Daisy Bindi in Western Australia. And so this was a real um, connection at this time. Many of these women didn't stay in the UAW very long, only for a few years. In the long run, they preferred to focus on Aboriginal-led organisations and campaigns. But I think their connection with the UAW, and in some cases with um, the Communist Party directly, influenced their politics and also their networks for a much longer period. As many people here listening today would know, Aboriginal protest politics and campaigns surged in the 1960s. Key campaigns included the demand for equal wages and the campaign for changes to the Australian constitution to empower the Commonwealth government to take action on Aboriginal matters. And in this wider picture, communists played an important part. In local Aboriginal support organisations in the 1960s, communists were active. Um, I'm thinking of Tess Brill, for example, in Lismore, or the example that I know best is um, in, um, at, Tar at Perfleet near Taree, the rent strike in 1960 and 61, led by Horry Saunders, who refused to pay rent in protest at the poor housing conditions on the reserve and the continual invasion of residents' privacy by the reserve management. When you read um, Horry, Corrie's own account of these events, the invasion of privacy is, is almost as big an issue as the poor housing conditions. This was a local struggle, but it received significant support from the Newcastle Trade Talk Council, in which my mother, Barbara Curthoys, who was a communist, um, she was secretary of that subcommittee um, and campaigned to raise awareness of the issues at Perfleet and to raise funds for Corrie Saunders' legal fees. Although in the end, Saunders was evicted for not paying his rent, uh, there were improvements to housing conditions on the reserve and the subcommittee continued to work on Aboriginal campaigns for another 20 years. I think I've only got time to mention two more events in the 1960s, and that's where I'll, I'll end because I know I'm running out of time. One event was the Grinchy walk-off in um, 1966, 1967, which began as a strike camp at Wave Hill, but then changed focus and became a land rights struggle when the Gurindji moved to Wadi Creek in their own country and petitioned the Governor General for return of their traditional land. Now, this was not a communist-led struggle, but communists, including also Frank Hardy, did play an important role in publicising what was happening to a broad Australian audience. I'd like to finish by talking about the Freedom Line of 1965, in which I was involved. This was a significant event in New South Wales, drawing attention to high levels of racial discrimination in country towns in New South Wales. And by the very simple act of demonstrating outside places of discrimination, such as the Walgett RSL Club and the Moree Swimming Pool, 
He managed to stimulate public debate and also, with the leadership provided by Charles Perkins, signal the emergence of a new and more confrontational style of Aboriginal politics. The Freedom Ride included two Aboriginal students, Charles Perkins and Gary Williams, and 31 non-Aboriginal students, of whom about seven did have Communist Party connections. Now, what is significant here is not Communist Party control, given the strong opposition to communism by both Charles Perkins himself and Jim Spiegelman and other students, that was never going to happen. But I think what is significant, that for these seven or so students, it was our upbringing in or close association with the Communist Party that affected our thinking and understanding. In my case, I left the Communist Party about a year after the Freedom Ride. I had disagreements on various issues, and I think I needed to forge my own way as a critical historian. Yet as I reflect on it now, it is clear that the commitment throughout its long and turbulent history of so many communists to Aboriginal rights with so much fervour and commitment, it was one of the party's most positive achievements. Thank you. G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. And you're on uh, Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, live, uh, out of COVID, live in the studio. Excitement, excitement. And we're listening to a fascinating uh, session that was uh, held, or part of it, uh, for the Communist Party of Australia's commemoration, a 100-year commemoration. And uh, it's fascinating, isn't it, to uh, hear... Uh, how um, the rope needs to be pulled uh, towards progress and how similar to, uh, the fight is, but how many good people have been involved in uh, making that fight continue. Uh, this particular session was about how the Communist uh, Party members uh, influenced or helped uh, Indigenous uh, politics to uh, reach where they are today, a uh, lot, lot more uh, effort needs to be made. But uh, now we're going to move to uh, Thomas Mayer, who's, of course, an Indigenous voice. Uh, he's a uh, ambassador for the Voice uh, from the Heart. Uh, it, uh, it's a, it's a came out of the Uluru Statement and uh, it's uh, got a whole range of uh, actions that they believe that are required to uh, move uh, towards a whole Australia uh, with uh, led really with uh, an Indigenous consciousness. Um, anyway, this is what Thomas Mayer had to say. He, he says a couple of... Uh, the, there's obviously differences of, of opinion, uh, as there always is amongst all people, uh, but this is his view. I think I'll, I'll begin in the 1960s, actually, uh, in acknowledging uh, a few things. Um, firstly, you know, um, it's important to, I think, uh, consider what the Yolngu people said in 1963 in the Yukala Bark petitions, um, that the people of this area fear that their needs and interests to be, will be completely ignored, as they have been ignored in the past and that they fear that the fate which has overtaken the Larrakia tribe will overtake them. Um, and I'm coming to you from Larrakia land, and I can say absolutely that even though the white perpetrators that built Darwin um, expected that that fear would become a reality for the Larrakia people, they're very much um, 
very well still here and, uh, and rising in their uh, prominence and recovering um, their culture and their language. So I pay my respects to the Larrakia people and their elders past and present. I, um, I, I just want to thank Arnie Millie for the, um, the acknowledgement of country um, and say it's, a, it's an honour to be speaking on this panel. Um, you know, with Anne that's done so much work in recording a lot of history, um, Teela, who's a fantastic leader today, and, um, and also to pay respects to uh, the elders of the Communist Party, really, um, who I think, uh, you know, without a doubt, have played a very important role in, um, you know, in our, in our activism um, in, and resurgence as a people and as sovereign people and that sovereignty being regained. Um, yeah, I was a Wolfie, for those that don't know me. Uh, I was a Wolfie for uh, around 16 years before becoming an official of the Maritime Union. And, uh, and I worked with some, some wonderful characters and communists, um, people like uh, um, Kevin Mansky, who was, um, who was very well known around Darwin as someone you didn't mess with. Um, and, uh, and a fellow that uh, had a lot to do with the way Bill Walkoff, among other social justice struggles, Brian Manning. And uh, I was a, a friend of Manning's. I was lucky enough to, to work on the wharf when he was still working there. And um, I guess just a bit of an aside as a, a laugh, I suppose. Um, I remember us young fellows wondering um, when Brian was going to retire. He was in his 70s at that stage and um, we were all hoping to get a job. <laughs> But it was, um, it was great to work with Brian and um, have a lot of good yarns with him. He did like to spend, uh, spin a yarn. And, um, and, you know, reflecting just last night before this talk today, uh, you know, uh, as a young fella, it's always hard to, to concentrate and listen to these stories. And, and Brian was a storyteller. And I just wish that I had have, uh, listened a bit harder sometimes, you know, and, and probably uh, or definitely um, have it, um, recorded some of the things that he told me. Um, things that may not have been recorded. Um, Manning and, uh, and those old Wolfies and then becoming an activist, you know, I learned a lot about the, um, the importance, uh, not just of the Communist Party, but, um, but unions to, to my own people's struggle. Uh, and mentioned a, a couple of them, but um, I'll mention uh, Fred Maynard as well uh, in the 1920s, uh, president of the AAPA, first... Um, uh, all Aboriginal political organisation, um, Joe McGuinness and Chica Dixon, all who were warpies. And so they say, um, you know, you can't be what you, what you can't see sort of thing. And, um, and I certainly had a lot of uh, Aboriginal activist warpies to, to, um, to look to, you know, and, um, and to try and follow in their footsteps and fight for my people. Uh, Chica Dixon, you know, I know he was a a leader in, in the fight for um, the 67 referendum, which takes us to the, the contemporary times now, to, to more of a struggle today. Um, and just to say, you know, without going back on all the things that Anne went over, um, that ultimately the Uluru Statement from the Heart is a continuation of um, all of those statements and petitions, the Carla Bark petition, um, the, uh, you know, the actions like the walk-off in the tent embassy, um, the Larrakia petition to the Queen in 1972, um, Barunga statement in 88. Um, this is a continuation, this movement today that Teela and I are both involved in. And, um, 
and it's something where we're um, basically uh, taking the baton from our elders and continuing this fight um, for the ability to stand up on our own, um, self-determination, um, to influence the laws and policies in a way that, um, that no longer incarcerate our people disproportionately and kill our people disproportionately. Um, I was a part of the, uh, the convention at Uluru and I only became involved when the Darwin Dialogue happened in early 2017. The convention was in May of 2017. And as a militant warpy, an activist, um, I can say with, uh, with total uh, genuineness that the process that led to Uluru um, was, was, was absolutely uh, very, very important to the, uh, the integrity that the Uluru Statement has, the cultural authority that it has, and the reason why we cannot take no for an answer. And I say that to you, comrades, because I know that um, us as activists and as very strong allies in First Nations struggle, that you will hear um, some of the misinformation that's out there, including from some Indigenous activists. And so I stress that as a person that was not involved in the designing, um, has never been paid a cent as a referendum council member or anything like that to do with that process that happened, it had complete integrity. Um, it was not perfect as any human process is, not even our union conferences and our um, political um, ways of reaching consensus and making our policies and choosing our priorities. Um, but it had absolute integrity as a process that um, we must uh, um, fully respect and pursue the outcomes of. Um, and I dwell on that a little uh, because... Uh, we have a uh, senator of the Greens Party appointed recently by the Greens Party, a mostly non-Indigenous party, Senator Lydia Thorpe, that, um, that was one of the walkouts at Uluru and I heard only two weeks ago talking to a reconciliation group um, some, uh, some fal falsities about what happened <clears throat> at Uluru and one of those being that, um, that they were cast out into the desert and that they feared for their lives because of traditional owners um, did that, and I can tell you um, absolutely as someone that was there that that is completely untrue and quite disrespectful to the Anugu people, and as a senator, she should be called out for it. Um, so the Uluru Statement, just just briefly, and I know Teela will probably go on this, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on what it calls for and why it's important, but a constitutionally enshrined voice is what it calls for, and that's because we know from the AAPA and all of the strong representative bodies that we've had all the way through to um, ATSIC and, uh, and the Congress of First Peoples that did its best in a way that tried to do something different to um, a legislated voice. Um, they've all been destroyed. So constitutional enshrinement is absolutely vital and we must have the courage to pursue it. Um, secondly, um, through a referendum, it would have a mandate of the Australian people. So it will make it stronger than any other voice, not because of the way it's protected. And I just want to point out this, that we're talking about um, a, a political party today, um, a political party that has influenced so much about Australian life, um, though it has never had power in this nation. 
And that the fact that it has never formed a government, um, just like a First Nations voice will never in this lifetime um, have a right to veto legislation, um, it still um, had a great influence on the things that we enjoy today. So I hope you understand what I'm pointing out there. Um, that when people criticise the First Nations voice as something that will only be advisory to Parliament, meaning it won't have a veto and it won't be able to block legislation, because simply because and we didn't choose that, even though we'd support that and, and absolutely desire it, um, but it's something that it will never pass a referendum. We just have to be honest. And that's why the government uh, fear-mongers about that, saying it's a third chamber to Parliament. Um, but we can still have that influence through the collectivism, through consensus building, through campaigning, through activism and, uh, and political work. Um, the other thing is treaty and truth. And one of the things that Senator Lily Thorpe has said is that um, they must come first, treaty and truth. Um, the Uluru Statement calls through it, for it through a Makarata Commission. We understand as unionists that you don't make an agreement with the boss without building power first, without building representative structures any more than um, a communist party or any other political party can function without structure and elected representation. And so um, I just want to make the point that it is um, uh, extremely uh, illogical to say that. Secondly, that truth-telling should come first is like saying how long is a piece of string? How long do we need to tell the truth for before we gain political power? Do we not acknowledge or realise that politicians already know the truth? They don't need to be taught it. They ignore it. And again, political power um, must be a priority for us. So I've, uh, I've taken my time to address uh, a couple of those myths because I know you comrades that are listening today um, will continue to support our struggle. Um, and you are an important part of the struggle, just like commu our communist elders have been an important part of our struggle. Um, and I'll end with this. The word sovereignty uh, means power and authority. And um, there is nothing that we can do um, that is more powerful than building a First Nations voice, a black institution, a black political um, force to be reckoned with um, that has power and authority over our own affairs, our own um, political uh, prioritising. Um, that is sovereignty in practice. And uh, I thank you all for listening. Thank you. Hi, Man's here from the Japarong Embassy. On October the 26th, after two and a half years of defending sacred women's country, the Embassy, family, friends and supporters were forcibly removed from country by Victoria Police. The Andrews state government, alongside Major Roads Projects Victoria, have begun their violent attack to desecrate the sovereign lands of the Japarong to make way for the duplication of the Western Highway between Buangal and Ararat. There are many old growth trees, one significant tree in particular, a 350-year-old yellow box gum, the Directions tree. She's a placenta tree who holds the DNA of the Japarong ancestors. She was felled by a chainsaw at the hands of a government that is asking for a treaty with its first peoples. The embassy and its frontline protectors are calling out for your help. 
To find out more, including how to get to the embassy to help defend on the ground, visit the Japarong Heritage Protection Embassy's Facebook page. Educate yourself, donate to their chuff campaign, and spread the word. 3CR supports the Japarong Heritage Protection Embassy. No trees, no treaty. Man, hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. Man, hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. Man, hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. Man, hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. I just pay my way out. This is a miracle. Go with the fellas, whatever the weather. We got drinks with umbrellas. You got time to wine, keep them down in the cellar. We got time to shine, I do that shit at Coachella. Throwing brunches and lunches, lunches and crunches. Living life in abundance, don't really worry about nothing. Then I pull up, hop out, wave at that cop now. Stop sign, ran that, oh that fine, that's not out. And hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. This is a miracle. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, my life is incredible. Miracle. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, my life is incredible. Oh, oh, oh. My life is incredible. Miracle. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, my life is incredible. It's okay. To be opaque, man, it's okay. To be opaque, man, it's okay. To be opaque, man, it's okay. To be opaque. You got your girl a new handbag. I'm living like I got my land. I got them tin tans and bintangs. Chewies and skip pants. Very vocal as my girl. I'll tell them all my big plans on how we head to Bali smoking Cuban cigars. And we fuck up the party like acoustic guitars. Man, hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. Man, hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. I just pay my way out. This is a miracle.
Kanye Gurujan. Kanderman. This is Stephen Pigram from Up Broomway, Yaru Country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. As we spoke about last week on Over the World, there's a current bill in the Federal Senate with the danger of it being passed in November this very month in 2020 for a massive expansion of the cashless welfare card and also a massive move towards making it a permanent measure. This bill will be making all current sites permanent, so previous trial sites of the card will become permanent. It's expanding to the whole Northern Territory and Cape York Peninsula. Also, starting old age pensioners in the Cape York going on to the cashless welfare card. Ministers have a power to select any person, region or cohort to be placed on the card. This bill to expand the cashless welfare card, if passed in the Senate, will affect 40,000 Australians. We featured last week a personal story and this week we'll feature another personal story living on the cashless welfare card. And it's a story that is not getting heard in the cities. It's getting ignored in the media, the mainstream media. But these are real people in our country in rural areas becoming a permanent measure and we'll hear now some of the issues that it's causing. Did you ever experience any times where your card didn't work? Yeah, it was really hard. Yeah, and if it's anything like the other trial areas, it just meant a lot of places were off limits. I've been to Sejuna quite a few times, which is another trial area, as you know, and the biggest event in Sejuna each year is the Oyster Fest, and they don't take cashless welfare, so it's almost like the town's not invited because they don't take cashless welfare, so... It means all of these cultural community events that make you feel yeah. like you're part of the community. Yeah, well, that happened here too. They couldn't use their card for entry to go in to take their families. Yeah, and Senate inquiries, it's almost like all of the submissions we keep doing, they just end yeah. up getting filed and never looked at again. But, but in the meantime, there's frustration, there's arguments. Yeah, it affects the home and family life as well yeah. because the tension is palpable. You've got to consider anxiety. People were having effects for paying rent. Mm. Yeah. All those things in the first year or so. And not many people come off it anyway. Like, it's a real shit fight. It's a um, big, long waiting list to come off it. Yeah, I've managed to get the statistics, and I have a particular interest in Sejuner, obviously, and Mm -hmm. out of the 83 applications, only eight have been granted. Thank you very much, Hayden, and thank you, Beverly, from Kununurra. Everyone knows that Kununurra was the second trial site put on and they were still waiting for their wraparound services and their youth support and diversion programs two years into trials. Peter <laughs> Ferrick, who fought... 
the last few years has been uh, supporting the SNS by compiling videos for us and, and taking Senate and things and cutting them down and who has recently come off after a year. Can you tell us your story, Peter? Sort of starting off my story. Mm-hmm. So if I also go back to the very start as to how I first heard about this, I didn't hear about it through social services or Centlink or even our local federal member. I actually heard about it through our state Labor member and she was holding a a meeting one night and um, and that was the first that either myself or any of my household, I still live with my family, three generations, mother and grandfather, and this was the first time any of us had heard anything about this cashless debit card uh, coming to our area and that a local federal member was actually putting his hand up to say, bring it to Hinkler, Thunderberg and Harvey Bay. So we went there and uh, there was quite a turnout, probably 50, 60 odd people. And I can't say that there was any positive reception to the card. A lot of people were quite angry about the fact that people's money was going to be quarantined, was going to now be scrutinised and managed by the government, and that people had not to date been involved in the consultation as to do we even want it in our area. So fast forward six, eight months, and there's apparently a consultation to my mind, it was nothing more than an information session and it was the Department of Social Services who were running at the time to say, look, this is the great new car that we're going to be trying to put people on in the area. There'll be 6,000 plus people that we put on this card and it'll only be the people that need it. No, those people that are on drugs and alcohol and gambling, you know, those people that can't look after themselves completely oblivious to the idea that maybe those people don't need to be put on a card to manage their finances. They need to be provided individual tailored services and support given to them because they have a mental issue, they have have medical issues. Quarantining finances is not going to fix that. Then the card comes in, I get put on the card because I'm in the target group because I'm under 35 because... Now, let's face it, only those under 35 are going to have problems managing our finances and be addicted to drugs, alcohol and gambling. No, heaven forbid anyone older than that have problems. (laughs) Now, the first instance was of having issues with the card was not having access to cash because by withdrawing access to cash, it meant that if I saw cheap furniture, cheap goods, on, say, Facebook, on the swap groups and the Facebook marketplace, I couldn't buy it because I didn't have the cash to be able to do it. If you go to local events like the swap meets or the carols by candlelight, went to that one year with friends. And the first year, which was the first year the card came in, couldn't pay for anything except for cash. And the following year, they actually had these little pop-up ATM machines And, of course, that's not going to work either because you can't withdraw cash on the injury card, can you? Another one was I was trying to get some new tyres for mum's car. So I rang up the local firm, Jack's Tyres, and it was like second or third week of being on the card. And so I'm just asking them, 
we're looking for some tyres for a vehicle. Do you guys accept the Inju card? He sort of had to scratch his head for a minute and say, oh, what's that? And said, oh, it's this card from the federal government. And uh, he just said, just hang on a minute, he'll go and ask somebody. Mm-hmm. And then uh, little does he know that I can still hear him in the background. And he's asking probably his boss or someone else there about the card. And the chap just goes, oh, what's that? And is the answer is, oh, it's that card for those druggies and alcos. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing is, I don't drink, don't take drugs, and I do not gamble. So... I resent the implication that just because I'm on the card that I must be in this group. It's just automatic stereotype. So I graduated from university because I was studying law. So it's coming up to graduation ceremony and I need to pay for hire for gown and uh, hat and also for the free duration photo and so I went on to pay that because I had to do that online and I could only pay it through PayPal and PayPal does not accept in Jukar. I was very very fortunate that I actually commented on Facebook about that and a relative of mine in Melbourne I suppose we're proud, aren't we? We do not like to have to ask our family to say, you know, hey, I'm on this stupid card. Can you pay for this for me? Put me in a predicament. I keep hearing, because I was part of the protests, this thing about you don't want to be on the injury card, get a job. Part of my background with being involved in the cashless debit card process was following the statistics. I used to look at the statistic of, I'm not sure what the numbers are now, I'm going back six months or so, and it was 220,000 jobs advertised nationwide. Yeah, 6 million unemployed, includes the underemployed and the so-called hidden uh, unemployed due to ABS statistics. So, now you sort of just do the maths, that means that if you fill every job vacancy that exists, okay, there's double that that are not reported, then there's still 5 million people that aren't going to get a job. This is a public service announcement. And number two, you have the right to food money. Provided you're good, you don't mind a little. Bombs is a protest against like all the food waste. We, I guess, rescue food that would otherwise go to waste, make meals from that food, and serves them up to people who need a feed. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. We need to have a working vehicle. So we do need money to keep our van going. Very occasionally we have to buy some food. To donate to our current fundraiser, go to www.chaft.org forward slash project forward slash Food Not Bombs pandemic support. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. Food Not Bombs 
And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, uh, free from COVID on in the studio. And we've got Kevin live. How are you, Kevin? I'm definitely live, uh, Annie. I'm definitely live. I should keep saying, would you say that? I'm, <laughs> well, I hope I'm not dead. That's all. So, yes. Yeah. So it's, it's quite um, exciting, really. Oh, it's it's just absolutely... I, I can't believe how wonderful it is, really, to be back on air live. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> a, a week solidarity, Bricky Team Mister, when just as commentators were speculating that the US of the UN of the US of the world election non-result could put pressure on Big Supremo Scuttlebem Morlash Son, a.k.a. Scummo, and the team of fossils to make a slightly more comprehensive commitment to address climate change, if there is such a thing as, then maybe if the economy can stand it, reaching zero emissions by some time before the end of the century, 2099, the target date. Along came the Socialist Party's giant fossil, Joel Fitzcarbon, to join the attack, not on Scuttlebem, of course, but a big winner of the Solidarity of the Week award by attacking his own party, saying it cannot win an election so it can address climate change if there is such a thing as, if it has a policy to address climate change, and obviously if it won an election with a no climate change policy so it could do something about climate change, it then couldn't do anything about climate change or it would lose the next election, denying it the chance to do something about climate change, if there is. Politics is so difficult, isn't it? And thus, Joel Fitzcarbon turned the spotlight off the caring business class government's non-climate change policy and onto the Socialist Party's non-climate change policy. And Joel maintained his fight for socialism by declaring the Socialist Party's shadowy minister must be sacked because he has upset the working class whom Joel represents by making the odd inferred suggestion that maybe the Socialists should have a climate change policy a real vote killer, according to Joel. Uh, but Joel, the Socialist Party doesn't have a policy, which is an attack on hard-working true blue Aussies in my electorate. No policy might appeal to inner-city greenies, but it is imperative that we have a policy of less than nothing. Joel's principled support for his own self-interest, providing the government fossils with plenty of ammunition, was blunted slightly by a counter-attack from former big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull, who burst into the news on two fronts, putting in a bid for the Solidarity of the Week award, but no match for Joel's stellar performance, although he didn't go unrewarded, taking off another prestigious prize, the Pot Calling the Kettle Award, when he warned Scummo that the US of would now take a different stand on climate change and Scuttlebem has to stand up to the right-wing commentariat and the people who have been holding us back, holding the caring business class and hayseed and sheepshit parties back on this issue. He has to say, I don't have to go on with all the bullshit about a gas-led recovery. Yes, that was Malcolm demanding someone stand up to the fossils. It's usually a wide-open contest, but Malcolm, you've run away with the pot coin, the kettle award of the week, hands down. Malcolm made his second foray back into the news by revealing he chastised the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations and Attorney General Christian Portaloo over... Uh, let's say the not business class relations, but the relations bit of all that. Oh, and he's heavy drinking. And also dobbed in the Minister for Family Values and Having Affairs with your staff, Alan Turgid, on the ABC's Four Bonkers program. 
Um, sorry, um, sorry, Four Corners. Christian Portaloo's image sticking into the Portaloo. But the interesting thing, because people having an affair would only be interesting if it was interesting, if there weren't several million people having affairs, ask former Hayseed and Sheepshit's uh, Supremo Barnacle. No, no, the interesting thing is Malcolm chided Christian for his behaviour while simultaneously promoting him. What's that say about the others? Over in the US of big supremo Donald Trump or the poor prepared for a smooth transition to himself, doing the only thing a true Democrat can do when the electorate gets it so wrong and declaring himself the winner, which he was if the electorate had got it right, and which he knew he was knowing they didn't get it wrong because the vote was rigged. Biggest fraud ever, ever. Horrible people, bad people. And there was this imposter, Joe Biden Capital, claiming he'd won based on no stronger grounds than the votes that he was elected. And Donald fired his secretary for train killing and slaughter as retaliation for the now fired secretary, thinking maybe it mightn't be smart to turn the train killers loose on Black Lives Matter protesters, defying his commander in chief, who knew these violent looters were being aided and abetted by the most dangerous anti anti-liberty, freedom and democracy threat of all, anti-fascists. What could be worse than somebody opposing fascism? The US of has an important precedent in refusing to accept a result when the people get democracy so patently wrong. The wrongful election of Hamas in Gaza, which proved the people had no idea what they were doing, and the US of and its very, very, very close friend Zion had no choice but not to accept the miscarriage, not to recognise the result, the ignorant result, and I'd recommend Donald and his team, including that legal whiz kid, Rudy Jaily, any Democrat, submit the Gaza experience as a precedent for their watertight case against the fake news result. Rudy held a press conference to detail how Donald won, which Donald tweeted would be held at the Four Seasons. A bit of a communications breakdown, because unfortunately it turned out to be the Four Seasons garden nursery tucked away between a crematorium and a sex shop which, given the quality of Rudy's arguments, we couldn't think of a more appropriate venue. Donald pointed to fraud in states where voting counting should have been, vote counting should have been stopped, and fraud in states where every count should, every vote should be counted. But Donald, uh, you urged your supporters to cast a postal vote and then turn up on the day and vote again. Of course, that was to vote for me. That was to prevent voter fraud. Here, Scuttle them, who has never met Joe Biden Capital, nonetheless told us, the big supremo elect is an old friend of True Blue Aussie. Uh, the big supremo elect. Yes, yes, what's his name? No, no, Scuttle them rang Joe to congratulate him, and he said they discussed several issues, had a conversation, and I must say I don't know which one to feel more sorry for. As the nation celebrated the 11th of the 11th, no, not Ned Kelly's execution or the Labor government's political execution by Her Most Gracious Majesty, no, the glorification of mass slaughter camouflaged its jingoistic respect. More news on that front to come, and we're fortunate to have with us a fine example of the cream of Trubler was a youth, brave young men and women in uniform, love their families and dear little children, life of the party, train killers we all love and admire. Uh, Lieutenant Mindless, what are the attractions of the job? Oh, you know, like, like you know, uh, kill, kill, kill. 
what? Because you care about the values which you represent, which you defend, which you protect, freedom, democracy. Uh, uh, like what? Uh, if you hadn't invaded to continue to invade Afghanistan and Iraq on our behalf, I imagine my now would be overrun by the Taliban. Taliban, kill, kill. Uh, thank you, Lieutenant. What a wonderful young man. It's delightful young men and women like Lieutenant Mindless who make us even more shocked, as ScoMo said we would be shocked, to hear of possible war crimes by true blue Aussie trained killers. Despite some lefty anti-warist peace cynic suggesting, they would, have, they would have thought the shock is that it's taken so long to admit that if your job is to kill people, there's, no, there's a strong chance you'll, you'll actually kill people. But if you brainwash those prone to be brainwashed in their desire to kill people, that those who they're sent to kill and the civilians in those countries we invade are vermin, not real human beings, then surprise, surprise, they'll regard them as vermin and not real human beings and kill them. For a bit of fun, it's their job. The inquiry has taken years, so the government, desperate to have the matter resolved, has announced it will appoint an investigator, leaving us to ponder what the bloke who spent years conducting the inquiry was doing to decide whether there were war crimes or war crimes worth prosecuting, with the word indeterminable dropping from Scummo's lips. So we shouldn't be holding our breaths. Finally, congratulations to the state socialist government for celebrating a delayed NADOC week by working on a treaty while chainsawing magnificent centuries-old culturally significant trees. Good morning. Five, four, three, two, one. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Sounded like machine gun fire You should have heard her when she came down
Yeah, back with Annie. And, of course, that was uh, Mark Seymour's uh, great song when the bridge came down, commemorating the uh, fall of the Westgate Bridge, the terrible disaster that killed 35 men. And uh, as our our interviews with people uh, revealed, uh, there was a man who died on... The following year when it was reopened, so 36, it claimed 36 lives. And the reason for why we've uh, played this song in particular is because uh, we're going to talk to Donna Jackson right now and we're going to say hello to her. G'day, Donna. Yeah, g'day. And uh, we're going to talk about Art and Industry Festival, which is coming up November 20th to the 29th. Everybody's very excited, no doubt, because of the end of the COVID lockdown. Yes, we started work on the Art and Industry Festival. It's biannual, so we've been working on it for you know since the last one, which was in 2018. And we were getting songs written about local workplaces in this area. We were designing outfits inspired by local industries and workplaces. And then the COVID hit. Um, but what was good during that long, dark, cold winter is that we could have artist meetups online over Zoom and have little workshops, and I really felt um, supported by being able to link up with other artists and talk about art projects during the cold, long lockdown. Now, the reason for the Art and Industry Festival is that you're going to be featuring, as you said, stories, songs, film and fashion that are inspired by Melbourne's West, and uh, that's why it was such a perfect uh, song to uh, start off, because reflecting our lives... Uh, in art, uh, they're not two different uh, things, industry and art. In fact, being an industrious artist is also part of it, isn't it? Yes, and I I think for me, I've got a long background in this area in the western suburbs. I was at Footscray Art Centre in the 1980s and the reason I had access to um, the Footscray Art Centre was because George Sealaff, who was from the Meat Workers Union, decided that we needed a community art centre in Footscray and he ran chocolate raffles and a whole lot of links with the Meat Workers Union that helped develop Footscray Art Centre. So when I was a young artist and I was looking for a place to make art, I walked into Footscray Art Centre and they said, oh, we like you. Anyone can come in here. Please come and make some art. And so I was there for a number of years and I started the Women's Circus out there in about 1991 and you needed places like that when I walked in and said, we need a circus for women. And Footscray Arts Centre said, great, let's do that. And we hope that there's a few lesbians who come in too. And I was like, wow, this place is so modern. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, all inclusive. Uh, but, all inclusive, but, you know, it has been, unions have really supported the work that I do. And um, I think the practice that I'm doing now I would call art in working life for people who are around in the 1980s and early 90s. There was a time when we had a movement called Art in Working Life when unions linked with artists to make art that told stories about working people. And that's what I'm continuing doing here with the Art and Industry Festival. So we try to find ways of um, telling authentic local stories through art making so a concert we're doing is called the song series concert and um, that started with mark seymour about 2006 i invited him to come under the westgate bridge and look at that memorial for the um 35 workers who died yep and um he came down had a look and then i gave him a whole lot of the um 
research materials on the Westgate Bridge. And he wrote that song. And I think that's been great that that's a really beautiful, strong song that commemorates a really important story. And I've sought to get other songwriters to write songs about our local area. So this year I had some sponsorship from Victoria University and I got um, professional songwriters. One would be um, Pete Farnan from Boom Crash Opera. Oh, really? And, yeah, Rusty Bertha, who's from the Scared yep. Little Weird Guys. He's very funny, very Isn't clever. He? And very musical. And Al- yes. So, um, and Jane Bailey, who's from Crying in Public Places and a beautiful singer and theatre performer. So they mentored um, four young students from Victoria University and I got them into the Williamstown Dockyards, which is closed at yep. the moment. And we went down into this big dockyard that's full of bluestone and took the students down there and they learn about the history of that area and then we took the students and the professional musicians down to Blunt's Boat Yard which is in Williamstown and it's where they still make hand handmade wooden boats yep. they were doing it for five generations and then we went over to OI Glass which is right near Science Works and we put on all our OH&S health and safety gear and we went right down into the furnace and we saw where they make bottles. And so these <laughs> globs of hot glass. It's come great, out isn't it? Get, yeah, oh. I've seen this. And also the way the, the, the expert nature of uh, uh, teasing something out of glass, molten glass. Oh, well, so, so the students were really excited. And I think for them, it was a time for them, the Victoria University students, of not just writing from their own personal experience and their lives, but to see that they can go out and find out about their local place and, you know, we're in the western suburbs, so we are the manufacturing heartland of Victoria. And they could see those workplaces. Then they've written songs about those workplaces. So one of the students, Maddie Jackaway, has written a beautiful song called Sheer Lines, and that's about the shape of boats and the style of boats that you can create. And it's, you know... Uh, it's just great that we've got a concert, the Song Series concert, which is a whole series of songs and a guest appearance from Mark Seymour, all songs about the Western suburbs and about play. So it's been a really good process. And also I just felt really lucky that we could keep working during the COVID lockdown. And now we've got a concert that we've made and some of it people have recorded in their own homes. And then we've threaded it together to make a concert that you can watch online Featuring Mark Seymour with Rusty Bertha, Pete Barn, and also Sherry Rich, who's a fantastic country music singer, and these four students all singing songs about workplaces. So that's part of the Art and Industry Festival, and it's on Friday, the 27th of November. And you just go to our website, and then you can click through the concert, and it's free. Uh, it's fantastic. There's a whole lot of other things as well, like the Industrial Film Fest. You, you, um, you include industrial fashion. Uh, there's a whole range of things. This is a very interesting uh, festival indeed. And it's all online? It's all online. So if you go art and industry um, au, you can just go in and see our program. And, yeah, and the film festival has got fantastic stories in it. Um, one of the little films is called uh, Homeward Bound, and it's the story of a young guy, Daniel Williams, who wanted to get a tattoo 
that said Homeward Bound with the Westgate Bridge put on his body. And the little film is the documentation of that tattoo being designed and then actually being put into his leg at yeah. um, Body Image Tattoo in Laverton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, it's, and so it's a story about um, people's love of place, but also tattooing as an art form. People don't always recognise that t- yeah. tattooing is an art. So, no, but there's a fusion going on here. Uh, I mean, you talked about art. I mean, I recognise art at work. Uh, that's one of the reasons for why I was so interested in your festival, because, uh, you know, taking the art to people in their workplaces, now from workplaces coming out to uh, the public, uh, and also a fusion of older with new uh, young people being, have you found that uh, this has been an expanding experience for those young people that have involved themselves in this, uh, seeing art in a different way and work in a different way? Yes, and I think so. Sometimes they're surprised that they can, that one of the projects we've got is called Welcome to Spotswood, and that Tony Meads is a sign writer who's done a big mural on a water tank that says, Welcome to Spotswood, right near Science Works Museum. And I've had young people say to me, what's a sign writer? (laughs) They don't know what a sign writer is. You go, oh, it's it's an old trade that, you know, people don't talk about now. Not everything's always been generated on a computer. Yeah, it's fascinating, um, isn't it? They don't know anything about how a type was created and all that hard work that went into, and creative work that's gone into making something happen. Yeah, I mean another another big section of the festival is um, industrial fashion, where we've got people designing outfits inspired by local industries or places. So, for example, um, Genevieve Murray is a maker creator, and she was inspired by Link Pumps. Now, this is a place that makes tiny pumps for boats or moving petrol or anything else, and giant pumps, and she's created dresses that look like little pumps on <laughs> girls. And then we've done a pump dance that's sort of quirky and Bauhaus and crazy, and that's industrial fashion. And in that way, because we've got the young dancers dancing these out in these outfits that are inspired by pumps, then they learn all about pumps as an industry. When they, I don't think they would be doing that when they're about 16, 14, 15, finding out about local industry. But when they're dancing in pump outfits, then they find out the whole history of that part of the industry. Oh, that's so fantastic. Uh, tell my listeners again how they can get on board and listen and see. Um, so the Art and Industry Festival, you just go online and put in artandindustryfestival.com.au or you can go Art in, and Industry Festival Facebook or Instagram and they'll take you through to our program, and then you can just book in to come to Industrial Fashion on Friday the 20th. Um, you have to book through Eventbrite, but it's free, and it's from 8 until 9.30. You can see that um, beautiful fashion show that's got about 16 different outfits in it. Or you can go through to the Art and Industry website and book for the next Friday night, which is Friday the 27th of November, to see the song series concert with all the songs about this local area. And I'll just mention that one of the songs that we had written was about my friend, lots of friends of this show, I imagine, Paddy Garrity. Oh, yeah. Um, so Paddy is a local, lives around the corner from me, and sadly um, died, Paddy yeah. died of COVID during um, 
the winter. Yeah. And so I spoke to Jane Bailey and the students and I said, look, Paddy was a really important person in this area, Comrade Paddy. Yeah. And they've written a song for Paddy Garrity that's going to be in the song series concert as a tribute to him and it's called Comrade Paddy Standing Tall. Oh, so, that's so fantastic. So this is November 20 to 29, the uh, Art and Industry Festival. Thanks you very much for talking to me today, Donna. Thank you, Annie. Pleasure. Don't talk about justice. Don't talk about it. Cause I don't know what it means. Don't talk about freedom. Don't talk about it. Freedom in my dreams. Don't you know I've been dragged around, kicked around, pushed around. Be put down, but I'm standing Don't talk about it Oh, not to hear Don't talk about learning Don't talk about it They took away my school Turned down the lights Don't talk about it Made me act a fool Don't you know that I've analyzed Theorized, intellectualized Institutionalized, but I'm standing A bit of uh, Archie Roach and Titus. Uh, we'll end the program with them as well. Uh, but um, before we do, we're going to finish the program talking to Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth. And the reason why I'm talking to you, Cam, is because uh, Victoria is going to have the biggest battery in Australia in Geelong. Can you explain to listeners what this is all about? Yeah, so this is a very good development and it's tied in with uh, the government moving us towards higher levels of renewable energy. So people probably are aware we have a thing called the VRET, the Victorian Renewable Energy Target, and that at this point we get most of our electricity from coal-fired power stations in the Tribe Valley and the VRET has set legislated renewable energy generation targets of 25% by 2020 and 40% by 25. Um, and uh, this is part of that program of moving us towards renewable energy. So it will be the largest battery in Australia. I think it'll be the largest battery in the Southern Hemisphere. It's a Tesla battery, so people are probably familiar with that. And it will basically fill up with energy at points in time where renewable energy is really, really cheap. So it will be cheap to fill and then it will sit there and basically act as a battery if and when there's an outage in a coal-fired power station or a blackout somewhere. So it's, it's basically a, you know, a, a short-term kind of investment in energy should something happen in the grid, as does happen for coal Well, that's one of the uh, big... Uh issues that is bandied around uh, by fossil fuel uh, people and also people who uh, generally are concerned about uh, uh, the idea that um, renewables are, oh, yeah, it's a nice and it's a nice idea, but it, uh, it's not reliable. And this is part of it, creating a, a node system, isn't it? 
It is indeed. And, you know, the normal climate deniers and renewable deniers love to say, oh, what happens when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine? And, you know, the point there you have to say is technology has come a long way in the last 15 years and we have a lot of ability to store energy nowadays through pumped hydro, through batteries, through actually quite a number of forms. So it's an argument that's out of date, uh, but they still love to wheel it out. And so you're right, this is about being able to store energy for release back into the system so it becomes a, a it's not a form of base load as such but it is a form of firm capacity and the other thing to remember is of course coal-fired power stations in victoria we have three left they're getting on some of them are notoriously unreliable and they do sometimes go offline or at least sections of them go offline and you can't control that so again we have these you know problems of supply sustained supply that exist in the coal-fired power stations anyway um, but also we're part of the NEM the national electricity market and we have a grid that goes over the border into south australia and into new south wales and so Certainly, the wind doesn't always blow everywhere, and we know at night the sun is out, but that through using the grid, you can actually access electricity from different parts of the grid at different times. So that old argument that, oh, well, renewables doesn't work and can't provide 24-7 electricity is actually an argument from probably the 80s or possibly the 1990s. <laughs> or the 1890s, because in actual fact, because in actual fact, this whole uh, process of uh, becoming uh, stable uh, and consistent, it hasn't always been this way at all. I mean, I, I was brought up in a country city, and uh, we always had candles because there would be occasional blackouts. I mean, it wasn't like it was an unheard of thing. This is, uh, uh, and uh, this idea that, it, you know, the world is magic and we're separated. I think perhaps COVID's actually kiboshed that notion. Yeah, I think it has too. And of course, we do have blackouts. Think of that huge storm that happened in South Australia that basically knocked off the South Australian electricity grid because of, you know, a, a physical natural event. Like, you know, we, you're right, we can't be cocooned from the natural world and things do happen. But what we can do is make a robust and a resilient electricity grid. And a really important part of that is the solar panels going on people's roofs. So that's another really important part of this transition. And as batteries at the domestic level get cheaper, that's going to be fantastic for communities. And I reckon communities Community and neighbourhood-based energy sharing is really the way to go. And if you've seen that film 2040, it's got a really interesting analysis of how that might work, where a whole bunch of you know houses in a neighbourhood might share electricity by being put off their roofs, generated off their roofs by solar PV, put into a shared battery and then you draw off it so that, you know, you can at least keep your essential appliances going when the broader grid goes down. So, you know, it, it, we, we do live in interesting times and the fact is uh, the climate is getting warmer and on really hot days that's when everyone has their air con on and that's when you're likely to get a brownout, a partial collapse in, in the system and those solar panels on the roof are basically insurance against that happening on those days. So I think another very good um, you know, system that the Victorian government has put in place is the Solar Victorian Solar Homes Program, which is helping to get a lot of solar PV onto people's roofs. So this is a coordinated effort, isn't it? This is uh, this is a sign of a, a many pronged uh, effort towards uh, what uh, you know, you know, lowering emissions and basically rejigging the entire economy and people's lives. 
when it comes to energy use and uh, um, access? It is, and we need to get on with the transition away from coal. We have four coal-fired power stations. We're down to three. They do have to close, but we need a proper transition plan to manage that to make sure that communities and, and workers aren't left behind. There's two really... Well, there's actually three exciting projects underway in Gippsland at present. There's a large solar farm near Turngabby that's got approvals. There's the Delburn Wind Project in the Streslecky Ranges, which is in, within sight of the coal mines in the Trobelli. And there's the Star of the South Offshore Wind Project, which will generate enough electricity for about 1.2 million households. I think it's, it's, it's going to have the output of about one. Also, uh, supplying so, se- secure, uh, well-paid jobs. Hello? Oh, yes, I'm sorry. Something happened there. <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, go on, go on with what you were going to say. Well, and we think that that's really great because there are jobs being lost in the offshore oil and gas industry in Bass Strait. You know, that resource is actually running out. And these are going to be same-sector jobs. And we really, you know, really appreciate the fact that the MUA, for instance, as a union, is backing offshore wind. So we see this, those three projects in the valley plus others are how we start a just and fair transition for communities in all the Trobe Valley. So the Victorian government has done a great job of building renewals and they need to take the next step, which is actually to say the T word, which is transition, and start to plan for that transition into a low-carbon future. Yeah, uh, make it normal, sustainable normality. Um, uh, The Geelong battery will, according to uh, uh, what has been said, will supply 85 jobs. And, um, of course, battery, uh, having a good battery was always the stumbling block when it came to uh, um, maintaining uh, the uh, retaining the electricity that or the power that had been collected uh, so this is a really big step forward isn't it yes it is and if you drill into the what the model of this battery is a little bit it'll it will be paid for by a company so it's, it's not a publicly owned uh, battery and we would like to see public community ownership rather than corporate ownership so it's not a perfect thing but what will happen is it should lower, help lower wholesale electricity prices, so it should have a benefit for domestic consumers. The key thing is, of course, how do you make sure that... Oh, it's gone again, Cam. Oh, we'll have to go. Anyway, he told us the good oil, and and he must have realised that, uh, or the electricity must have uh, realised that we've come to the end of the program. And it was very nice to be in the studio again. I hope you're all... Uh, Happy as uh, I am, uh, happy lorikeets. Uh, we're going to, as I promised, we're going to go out with an Archie Roach Tidus number. Hold on tight, and uh, good Nadoc week uh, for all of you out there. <laughs> Take love for granted It's not there all the time The party's all over And you've drunk all the wine She doesn't feel different 
feel just the same as you did on the day she accepted your name and hold on time she loves you and you love her you know that love her Feels like an old friend Or a stranger outside You don't want to let in But can you say I love you Without any pretense I feel like a neighbor Talking over the fence Better hold on tight She loves you and you love her, you know Better love her eyes All the day will come when she will go Like the sun sinking You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.